0: This third series of the Totnes chain is a little different. We decided that instead of having a chain, we would have a five-link series of individual episodes, all based on Totnes professions. But it's still five links long. Judy Westercott was born in South Moulton in January 1940. She became a Wren in 1957, working initially as a telegraphist in Morse Code before becoming a training officer. She then went on to work for the DHSS in 1971 in Plymouth. She first joined Town Council in 1989 and went on to stay there for an astonishing 30 years, becoming mayor four times and was named as a runner-up to Council of the Year in 2018. She joined the District Council in 1991 working there for 24 years and became head of the council. She was also the only woman to serve as chairwoman of the Harbour Board and was given an MBE in 2008 for services to local government. She was a much beloved and brilliant councillor. She is interviewed here by the present mayor of Totnes, Emily Price. Judy's song is My Way by Frank Sinatra.
1: And now the end is near And so I face The final curtain My friend I'll say it clear
2: I'll state my case That was
1: uh, Frank Sinatra singing I Did It My Way. Um, Judy, do you want to tell us why you chose that song?
2: Well, I think anybody who knows me will probably know the answer to that. Um, because no matter what was dictated or what I felt I should do, I always did it my way anyway. Yes, well, you are legendary from that for that certainly on the on the council in the,
1: in the years that we shared together on the council, um, and as one of our most esteemed and long lasting councillors, uh, can I backtrack a bit to what? It was in your life, which the trajectory that led you to the council, so, because you were a wren first, weren't you? Having been born, I should hasten to add, in nineteen forty, and only just retired from the council, um, but there was a a whole history before that.
2: Well, I suppose from the age of about nine, I must have seen or heard a television programme or something of that nature, and I thought that sounds like a heck of a lot of fun. No parental guidance, I can. <laughs> Do it my way. And I said it so often between then and 17 and a half that I really felt obliged to join the REN. so I did. And, and what was that like? Because it, it was in the 50s that you joined, wasn't it, 1957? It was, it was quite good fun. I mean, there were rules and regulations which I hadn't really expected. Which How many of certain... them did you break?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I didn't actually break any. I just stayed within the acceptable level. Right. (laughs) I started off actually um, after basic training as a sparker, which in those days was a telegraphist, a bit antiquated because it involved coastal control by Morse code and a bit of air traffic control work. Um, And then from there, I went on to get a commission. Um, After my probationary time in Scotland, I was a training officer at the new entry Ren's Intake in Reading. OK,
1: yeah.
2: And, but you were, you were based in Plymouth for a while as well, weren't you? Yes, um, after, after my training stint, I went to Plymouth, where from which I retired. All right. And, and that was some 10,
1: 11 years later in the late 60s. What happened then? Oh, oh but wait a minute. I heard rumours that there were some interesting
2: stories about javelin throwing that happened um, during the Ren's. <laughs> yes, I played a lot of sport. Um, there are three levels. There's co- two levels, command level and service level. Um, And I, at command level, I did javelin throwing and sprinting Um, and the same with hockey, but just at command level. Uh, I never actually won any of the events. Um, The thing about the javelin throwing, I remember it was at an army camp and obviously we were against the RAF in the army. And I was there with the other Wren, who was the other javelin thrower. And we were standing at the throwing thing trying to get our run-ups right when these two army javelin throwers arrived, took one look at me and nudged one another and said, here, look at her with her lipstick on. So I thought, oh, God, here we go. So they simply picked me up and swung me around. (laughs) But, But my friend said... Would you mind putting our Wren officer down, please? (laughs) My (laughs) God, you've never seen such swift movement. I was down and brushed down, but they still beat us. I think I came, I actually came last, but I did throw over 100
1: feet. Wow, that's quite impressive. I don't think I could have done that. So before we start on your long and illustrious career uh, in government and local government,
2: um, tell us a little bit about the beginnings, Judy's beginnings. Well, I was born in South Moulton in North Devon which was a small market town and similar to Totnes in as much as it was given borough status and therefore the locals couldn't graze their sheep on the respective moors of of Exmoor and Dartmoor. Um, It was a little bit smaller than Totnes and it was very much a community-minded town in those days. Now of course it's like Totnes it's been expanded and has the same sort of problems facing it as we do here in Totnes. And I had quite an interesting upbringing uh, with two gangs, <laughs> one of which was my gang and one of which was one of the chaps' gang. And we used to stand and confront one another, never actually doing anything. And then the year happened when he was mayor of South Moulton and I was mayor of Totnes. Oh, how so fantastic. we went to each other's respective dinners and at... Um, His dinner, when I had to give my speech, I said, do you remember all those years ago when we had our gangs and we stood opposite one another on the square in South Moulton and waited for the other to start something? He, He said, yes, I do remember Judith, as I'm known, my hometown, Judith, not Judy. He said, I remember that very well. He said, we stood there thinking, oh, please, God, don't let them start anything. They, We were all scared to death. And I said, oh, well, thank God for that, because we were too. So no harm was ever done by the rival gangs of South Moulton. <laughs> yeah.
1: So it's not exactly the Bronx, is it? <laughs> so, uh, so you were there until... Uh, 1957.
2: 57. Which was the date that I... Be- Joined the Wrens.
1: And so tell us a bit more about the Wrens. What was, the,
2: what, what was it that kept you there for 10 years? T- tell us some stories, ideally juicy ones. I think that, I mean, as a Wren, you were a watchkeeper, so you slept part of the day and you went on watch at night. Um, but when I, when I was an officer at the officer's training establishment, there was one thing I remember, and there's one thing I particularly remember about being, being stationed in Scotland at HMS Gannett, So let's go for the Scottish one. Mm -hmm. There were very strict rules about what time you had to be in at night. You know, shore leave ended at mostly 11 o'clock. And there was one event when some wrens and some sailors went outside the airfield perimeter to an old broken down school and had a party. Unfortunately, they were caught. They were captain's defaulters and they had stoppage of leave and stoppage of pay. The stoppage of leave meant they had to parade to the officer's mess when they would all sign the defaulter's book. And they used to come up in dribs and drabs and sign in. On the night that I was duty officer, they said, what's going on? And there was this column of wrens all smartly marching up to the entrance to the officer's mess. They then turned in line. One of them came up, saluted and said, defaulters are ready, ma'am, for inspection. So I said, well, thank you very much. You'll all sign in. So they signed in. And there was a little one on the end called Wren Brady, who was an extremely good officer's cook, but not perhaps as bright as some of the others. And she said, yeah, ma'am, she said, I've got something I've got to tell you. I said, well, what's that, Wren Brady? She said, it's over there on the mess deck over there. She said, there's this bird. So I looked up at this large seagull sitting on top of the railings. And I said, yes, I I can see that. She said, it's a letter-spotted Scottish thrush. I said, really? Do you think I ought to get the other officers out to have a look at it? And she laughed and said, "Eh, ma'am, I know I'm daft, but even I know that's a bloody seagull. (laughs) And the other one was when I was a training officer and I had two new entrants who were people who... Weren't wrens who were promoted from the lower deck, but came in as officer candidates, did their basic training a couple of weeks and then went straight to Greenwich. And they were awful, these two. They were snooty, they didn't like the other wrens. And I was really glad at the end of their passing out parade when they were all off on leave. And these two were standing at the entrance with their suitcases. So no cars could get in or out of the establishment. So I was off on weekend. I had a taxi. So I leant out the window and said, would you please mind moving your cases? So they turned round with a look of disdain and completely ignored me. So I asked them again politely, same response. So I said to the driver, just drive on. He said, pardon. I said, just drive on. So we did, straight over the top, Of their suitcases, when I leant out the window and made a very unladylike sign. (laughs) Very good, brilliant. So, uh, ten years in the wrens, ten or eleven years until the late 60s, and what happened then? Well, I got to the stage, having been promoted, that I didn't like it very much. I'd had much more fun as a wren. The officers were okay, but. they didn't take to me. I was, you know, West Country and a bit rough around the edges. And I thought, when I retire, I know nothing about national health, nothing about registering with doctors and dentists. Oh, why not get out whilst you can? And I'd been sent to Plymouth. Had I been sent to Portmouth, I might well have stayed. But my arch enemy, who was two and a half stripes to my one, was the officer in charge Wren. So I got all the crap jobs Um, And every time she could find reason to caution me about something I'd done, she did. So I resigned and I went to Plymouth and I thought, what shall I do now? I thought, I don't know. So I saw this job in a flower shop. So along I went and I became, well, I suppose a man or girl Friday. I did all the bosses advertising. I did the accounts. I answered the phone, everything except the artistic bit. And that was fine. I had a quite a good, you know, team working there. There were lots of staff, and one of them became um, a Plymouth City councillor, um, Alex Sloggett. She was called. Her husband was a solicitor, and she was great fun, completely mad. And I remember one particular occasion, I was serving a customer, and she sort of sidled up to me, um, like cent- I was centre stage. She was coming from the wings, and she said, "Judy I've had an accident." I've just upset a bottle of black ink and it's gone all down your red tights. So I said, don't worry, Alex, don't worry. Um, Anyway, she said, I'm going up to lunch now. Um, When you finish serving, if you go out in the back and take off your tights, then I'll sort them out. So I did. Anyway, afternoon came, Alex came back down. And I said, well, fine, Alex, did you manage to wash my tights? Did the ink come out? Oh, yes, she said, I did a really super job. She said, unfortunately, I then dropped them in the electric fire. (laughs) And that was Alex. And she was the sort of person who would answer the front door, stand on the step, let the door shut behind her and then have to go round in her nightdress around to the (laughs) back door. But I really enjoyed my time, but I was bored. So I then looked for another job. And
1: that was that was your move finally into local government, but as a as a as an officer
2: originally. I not was a... a clerical officer in what was the DHSS. Then it became the SSS, <laughs> and then it was now that well, what's now the benefits agency. Um, I ended up as a as a higher executive officer, which is the lower management level. Right. Yeah. I, I think one of the main things I remember from that was. You know when you go on holiday and there's a job nobody wants to do and you're away so you get volunteered for it? Mm. Well, I came back from a wonderful holiday in Greece and they said, oh, Judy, um, you're off next week. I said, what do you mean I'm off? Well, you're off to Glastonbury. I said, well, why the heck would I go to Glastonbury? They said, well, they need a team leader to pay out the benefit to the people who go to the Glastonbury Festival. I said, oh, all right then. They said, you don't mind? I said, well, no, I'm going to pay benefit. I'm not going to kiss them or sleep with them. So <laughs> off I go to Glastonbury. And it was really good fun. And if I hadn't drunk as many pints of beer, I'd have made a fortune out of it on the expenses. But, you know, we were offered all sorts of things. I was offered dope cookies. Um, did, you, did you accept? no. Wasn't quite sure what the dope was. in, <laughs> And they used to write things on the wall. And I think some of them were really clever. I think the best thing they ever scrawled on the office wall was I've been stoned at Henge, which I thought was really inspiring. Um, and I did have to go to the camp with the police once to um, try and sort out some minor problems. And the police said that, you know, they were quite used to dealing with cannabis people because they'd had this incident where a local farmer had grown two fields of cannabis and the police being the police didn't think to check the wind, so they just set fire to it and the whole of the time was was sort of under the cannabis um, influence for some considerable time.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. And so that was, how long were you working there? That was, that was in Cornwall, wasn't it? No. Um, oh, no, OK,
2: that wasn't I, it. I started off, um, I was based in Plymouth. Right, OK. Um, and I remained in, in Plymouth, but in different locations. Um, I did what? I retired um, after about 21 years. I wow. took early retirement because by then I'd become a local councillor and I enjoyed that far more than I did working in the benefits agency. Right.
1: And where were you a local councillor? Well, in, in, in Totnes.
2: Oh, that, that was when you... So you'd moved yeah, to Totnes so I, already, by I then. used to drink in the Albert Inn in Bridgetown. Right. And one of the guys there was a local town councillor. And when he died, they said, oh, God, you know, we ought to have somebody on the council so we can have all the inside information. (laughs) So I thought, what do I do when I retire? I know it's a few years away. I know what. I'll stand just to see what happens. So I stood and I actually beat, I think it was the Lib Dem candidate, By two votes. And of course, everybody who drank in the Arbor Inn claimed they were the two votes. (laughs) So I became in 1989 a town councillor. Uh, I think that's, you know, given your illustrious ki- career in
1: the town council, ending up with an, with an MBE for services to Totnes, which is no mean feat. Um, uh, I think it's quite interesting that the whole thing started just to
2: be the pub mole. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, I think, probably why, having been elected there, um, the late Bill Bennett, uh, stood down from the district council. So two years later at the full council, because I'd been elected at a by-election, um, Bill said, if you do the job properly, I'll tell my old ladies to no, vote for you for district. So I, I agreed that that's what I would do. Um, and on the strength of that, I got ele- elected to district council as well. So I'm sorry, Bill, if sometimes you may have raised your eyebrows a bit. But yeah. as I said, I I'd, I'd do things my way. You certainly do. But you ended up as chair of district council. so uh... Yes, the only Totnes member, even though they had conservative councillors and I was an independent um, to ever be the chairman of district council. Um, and as a district councillor, I was the only lady ever to chair the Dart Harbour Navigation Authority, as it was then, which perhaps doesn't say very much for my chairmanship if they still haven't had another lady. <laughs> and then, of course, I've been very lucky. I've, I've been the mayor of what is an incredible town. Yes, Se- several times. H- how many times? Four? Uh, same as another councillor who should be nameless. <laughs> Five. <laughs> Five.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. During your time on the Town Council, it was part of your sort of MBE award was because not just the Town Council and District Council, but chairing
2: how many committees? Well, I'd always been used to sort of organisations and I think at one time I had more committees in the town than the leader of Southampton District Council did. So if you look at district and town and all the other things I did, albeit some of them may only have met once or twice a year, I think the final highest total was forty. Wow!
1: And and um, how many how many do you chair now? Have you have you have you
2: stepped back from everything? No, um, I'm vice chairman of the Totnes Hospital League of Friends. I chair the Elizabethan Society. I'm a trustee of the Birdwood House Trust and the Alms House Trust, and the chairman of the Friends of Tottenham Museum all of which apart from the league of friends only meet once a quarter and apart from one which i don't mind because it's down the road and we have whiskey and nibbles
1: <laughs> they're all daytime
2: and what drove you to what drove you
1: to do it so obviously what drove you to start the process was Uh, your role as Pub Mole, but what drove you to stay for 30 years on the council and stand for
2: mayor five times and chair 40 committees? Well, we're back to the song again, aren't we? (laughs) Um, I think it was time somebody did it their way rather than in the old traditional fashion of the people who'd been there an extremely long while. And I remember overhearing a conversation because in those days, the past mayors met to decide who they were all going to vote in as their next mayor, which to me was a totally unacceptable thing. And I heard them talking, and they said, well, "I tell you what, but that new girl—I know she hasn't been there long—we'll be able to push her around. Let's have that Judy Westercott as mayor." Oh, they didn't know what they, they were signing up for. certainly lived did to they? regret it. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm sure they did. And how much did they push you around?
2: Not a jot, I. imagine. exactly. not <laughs> at all. I did listen to certain people who shouted loudly, like Rang Krang, and I was guided by Bill Bennett, but not to the extent that I didn't do it the way. I honestly felt it should be done. right. And I mean, you 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 are still um one of our most much loved
1: mayors. I mean you know your legendary patience and
2: kindness and pink hair. <laughs> yes, it's getting a bit thin to do that now But I must admit, I am becoming tempted And I was hoping if I'd have been brave enough Now I'm a bit older, I'm not quite so uh, much a maverick Is that maybe was Emily, you had been mayor That I would have exercised my right as a freeman of Totnes And driven a herd of sheep up the street Without applying for a road closure order I mean, you know, it'd just be something different, you know, go out with a bang if you can. <laughs> With a bar in this case. With a
1: bar, yeah. And and how's the how? So over the years, because obviously you've been involved in in the council for thirty years, but also you are very much um, up to date with what's going on, and still have your spies in the uh, in the council. How how would you say it's changed from when you first since nineteen eighty nine? So
2: thirty four years since you first got involved in Totnes Town Council. I think the main thing is the professionalism of the council and the council staff, which is now much greater than it was. I mean, in in my sort of way of thinking, when I was first elected in 1989, there was a set pattern. You always did things this way. Therefore, you didn't want change. You did the way you'd always done it. Whereas now, I think the council tend to look at the pluses and minuses, work out what they think the people of Tottenham would want them to do and then vote accordingly. So it's a much more forward-looking council now than it ever was in my early days.
1: Yeah. Um, and what, what, what were your, uh, let's say, three highlights and three lowlights
2: of your, of your 30 years serving? <gasps> That's a difficult question. I think I'd have to say the first time that I was elected as mayor when I'd been on the council two years. And I knew then that I was, well, I was, no, two years I was deputy to Lewis Major. And I knew because I overheard a conversation that I was not his first choice. He'd pick someone else who didn't want to do it. So then in my third year, it was my turn, picked, as I've already told you, by those who thought they could be obeyed. And I remember going into... St Mary's Church and saying a silent prayer that I'd do things properly the way that I'd seen Bill Bennett and other people I'd admired do it before me. So I think that was the real highlight, as was my final time as mayor, and I think my civic dinner was something I shall long remember. Mm -hmm. Um, Duchess of Somerset on one side, and on the other side the then MP... Dr. Sarah Wollaston, with Nick By from Torquay, who was one of the best after-dinner speakers has ever been. And the whole evening was really, really friendly, and people really enjoyed themselves. And I think the beginning and the end of being an important person, because there's nothing so ex as an (laughs) ex-mayor, were probably two of the main highlights. And thirdly, of course, all the wonderful opportunities to meet people from all walks of life, to have some smashing dinners, lots of wine and pleasant company would be the third thing. Lovely. And what about lowlights? <sighs> Very difficult. Sometimes when I got frustrated by the council because I thought I could see things that they didn't see, which wasn't always the case, um, which was something that I admired the late Ian for, because although he was laughed at by many people... Ian was always the one who thought of the thing that everybody else was too clever to think about. So so I think it was just sometimes the actual frustration of not being able to achieve what I wanted to achieve. But other than that, I must admit, I had a thoroughly enjoyable time. And, And the big surprise, of course, was getting my MBE for something that really I thoroughly enjoyed doing.
1: Yes, and tell me a bit about that. How how was that? I mean, who
2: nominated you?
1: You you never
2: get to know, but I did happen to find out it was the chief executive of South Ham's (laughs) and one of my fellow district councillors. And I know at least the then vicar wrote one of the three letters and a very well-known local CBE wrote the other. Don't know about the third, because if you know... And you let it out before the appointed date. Mm. You don't get it. Okay. And, I mean, it's interesting because I got the post and there was this brown envelope and a oh, bloody hell, a tax thing. <laughs> and I opened it and to my amazement, it offered me the opportunity to be an MBE. So I thought, let's go for it. And you have to keep it quiet from when you hear, which is usually about three months before it becomes public, then it was really great. But you know, the sad thing was I had more sympathy letters when I was in hospital than I ever had congratulatory letters when I when I was awarded the honour. But it was great. Um I took the then mayor, Pam Barnes and her husband and a fellow district councillor up to London with me. And it's all very formal. Um you're searched obviously when you go in. And then you go one way and your guests go the other. And you stand in the line, you have a practice, and up you go. And then suddenly there you are face to face with Her Majesty the Queen. And you try and do a curtsy and not fall over, which I just about managed. Okay. And she was very knowledgeable. I really think she should have had an earplug or something because she knew that I did the Cinnamon Trust as a charity, um, which is an animal uh, charity Mainly for elderly and terminally ill people, based in Cornwall. And then she said, "When were you first in Totnes?" And I said something, and I thought that's not right. Anyway, after a second attempt, which was also wrong, I decided I'd leave it at that. I mean, you can't really forget 1984, but I did. (laughs) Then you, the Queen, hands shakes you, shake her hand, you back off, you curtsy again, and you exit right where you pick up your handbag, and that your medal has been pinned on by the Queen, and off you go, and outside to the photographers. So the first thing I did, did it my way, I dropped my box containing the MBE. <laughs> so I've got the only scuffed MBE box probably in the whole of the world. But it was a fantastic day out and I thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Amazing. And back to the sort of changes over time in your sort of long and illustrious uh, career. What, uh, what, how has district council changed? We talked about town council, but how has the district council changed?
2: But I think, The difficult thing with being a district councillor is that for all my time on the council, it was a Tory stronghold, which meant I think sometimes there was little as six of us who were either Liberal Democrat, independent like me or Green. And you very rarely got a say in any matter, um, which really was disappointing because... We had just as good an idea of things and what the people needed as the other side of the council did. But I always voted the way that I thought the people would want me to vote from information I gathered when I knocked on every door of every election and voted that way. Even if it meant sometimes I voted against the opposition to vote for the vote for the Conservative Party. and And many of my friends were district councillors, and sometimes when I see them in Totnes, you know, they come up and buy me a coffee, give me a kiss, and it doesn't ruin my reputation anymore. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> sure.
2: Tell me a little bit about the Elizabethan Market, because you, you were chair for many years and still are, so yes. when did that start? What The Elizabethan Market started in 1970 by the then editor of the Totnes Times, Claude Somebody, either the father of, or the, the um, father-in-law of Councillor Marion Adams, who'd been abroad and seen them all dress up in in their traditional clothes and thought it would be a good idea for topness. So it was launched in 1970 and apart from the Covid years, has run ever since, albeit the lesser number of stalls, shops not dressing up anymore and people not coming into town dressed in costume. And there are now more craft stalls than charity stalls. But it does a service to the town because it does bring people in when hopefully they see shops and either spend their money there and then, visit the guild hall, the museum, or make a mental note to come back again on another day and really explore this historic, fascinating town.
1: Yeah, great. And so do you still enjoy doing it, even in
2: its slightly reduced form these days? I used to, um, when I was first on the market, before I became chairman, I used to stand in the pillory, which is the one you put your head and arms through, and people paid to throw wet sponges at me. Well, after the second week and wet costumes, I bought a large polythene sheet, which covered up all but my face. And I must say that the underarmers hit me more often than the overarmers. And I suddenly thought there must be an easier way of earning money for my charity than standing there. <laughs> so I, I then had first one and then two bric-a-brac stalls, which I, I still have now. And yes, I am still chairman. Nobody else wants to do it. <laughs> it's often the way. Let me tell you about our, our major event, Oh yes, which yes, is good. the Topness Orange Races. Um, which involves children and adults kicking oranges from Fourth Street to the Seven Stars at the bottom. The actual true story is that Sir Francis Drake came to the town and gave an orange to a youngster he met in the main street. And um, the youngster went on to be, I think it was it was Governor, certainly of somewhere like Nova Scotia, who wrote a poem, which you can still find online. That is the true story. The story that most people tell is that Francis Drake was so wealthy, he had a whole basket full of oranges, which would have cost a fortune in his day, and he dropped them in the main street. But that is not true. So we had youngsters from age three up to, well, as old as you can manage to make it, from different stages, hurtling down the street kicking their oranges and there are only two rules first of all you must kick it and secondly when you cross the winning line in order to win the first second or third prize you must have a piece of your orange or somebody else's orange to get that prize
1: (laughs) it's a it's a very famous event and just to tell a small story which might be edited out but um uh, some time ago i picked up john simpson uh, when I was driving for for the Ways With Words Festival. And uh, so I had to meet him at the station and take him to Dartington Hall. And when he got in the car, he said, Totnes, he said, I've read that poem about the Orange Races. I've always wanted to see it. Can, he, can we go and have a little look at the High Street? Because I just want to picture where it happened. Uh, so I drove him up the high street he said do you mind if I stop and take a photo so we stopped outside Mange 2 and he emerged this giant and very very uh, distinctive man from, from my little car and, um, and started taking lots of photos at the hu- uh, up the high street and uh, some of the people sitting outside Mange 2 their eyes were sort of wide like saucers because normally when John Simpson's around taking photos it's not a good <laughs> sign <laughs> and, um, and then got back in the car and drove off so yeah even John Simpson was fascinated to hear about the orange race, which is, uh, which is your baby. So, uh, yeah.
2: And will there be an orange race this year? Well, at present, we are looking for funds. We are applying to the Town Council. <clears throat> it's the setting up of the road closure, which costs about £850, which is a lot of money. And the council kindly gave us that last year and did the road closure order for us. So we're not sure whether or not we'll get the council grant. So we are trying to do some lottery funding and also some crowdfunding. But the bottom line is that funds are low after the COVID years of no market because our only income is from the stalls. And we charge two fifty a table to have that stall. So it would be awful, but it may well happen that this year there will not be an orange race, and we'll try and raise the funds for next year. But now what? What are we in? This is our 53rd year. So um, w-
1: although this is not a sales pitch type of uh, procedure, we could probably encourage people to uh, donate <laughs> if they were uh, able towards the road closure. <laughs> <laughs> Why Actually,
2: not. Why not? what, what yeah. would be really good... Would, I mean, the, we don't make any money from the orange race. It costs us money. Some of the businesses support us by giving us the prizes or some of the prizes would be if they looked at how much difference it made to their takings on the Tuesday and made a small donation to the crowdfunding, you know, or, or do something to enable it to happen. It'd be such a pity because it attracts locals as well as people on The majority of winners are overseas people who go away with their little photographs and their trophies and their prizes and encourage people to visit Totnes next year.
1: Mm. And where where do you see the future of Totnes going? Because Totnes as a
2: town must have changed hugely over the time you've known it as well. No, I think that's a difficult one. It depends on the amount of development that we're allowed to have. And one of my worries would be that the building will extend outwards and that Totnes and Dartington will not have a boundary between them. I know things have to move on. People need houses. But having said that, what we don't want is local people having to move away from their hometown, either to work or to find somewhere to live. And it's difficult. We don't at present have as many second homes as maybe Sulcombe, but I would hope that that will not increase dramatically over the coming years, but it is bound to grow more than it has.
1: And I I, I think perhaps we uh, suffer from a problem of the wrong kind of building because although people need houses, the houses that are being built are not being built for the need in the town, especially
2: for young families and low-income workers who are struggling. I mean, the difficulty there is that they have to be built. I think it's, it's at level three, sustainability. If they were all built to level four then that to me is the way forward because there's no point in building a low cost house that somebody can't afford to live in. Mm -hmm. But the difficulty is the developers will do their sums, they'll come up with figures and prove that if they give that extra bit, um, they will then have to reduce the amount of social housing to help them make the sort of profit that they want
1: thank you so much Judy Uh, it has it's been a pleasure to talk to you today it's it's long been a pleasure to work with you so uh, I'm delighted
2: that you were able to come and share your your life and your stories with us all I think the final word has got to be mine as I've always done it my way and that would be (laughs) let all the councillors know those who are being elected in May those who are being re-elected that if you want to have fun in this life do it your way (laughs) thank you very much (laughs)
0: Thank you, Judy, and thank you, Mop. The next episode features my mum, Jennifer Allen, who will be talking about her experiences in the last world war. Thank you for listening.